All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, others, we are uh, going to discuss this week's Torah portion, which is a very, very important Torah portion. But we're going to come out, hopefully, with something practical about the meaning of life, and that's not practical, but and something practical about how we should live our lives. And as I said in the teaser, you must do this before getting married. I'm recording on my podcast app. Um, okay, so this I'm going to run through the ma- major themes in the Parsha, and we'll discuss a little, and then we can have a, a candid conversation after we get through the main themes uh, about whatever is on your guys' minds. So this week's Parsha is called Shlach, and Shlach literally means to send. And something tragic happens in this week's Parsha, which we are still paying the price for today. Does anyone know what happens in this week's Parsha that has major consequences for Jewish history? What? I was going to say the 12 spies. But yes, you're right. The 12 spies. And, and what happens with these 12 spies? So I'll say the background and you say the punchline if you remember it, that Moshe sends 12 spies to check out the land of Israel. Now, we're literally right about to enter the land of Israel. They decide to send spies to figure out the best way to conquer the land. So they choose 12 great men. The Torah calls them Kulam Anashim. All of them were men. All the men were men. So what does that mean? It means they were real men. They were leaders. The word Anashim means men, uh, but also means leaders. But as we'll see, the word men is significant here. So don't forget about that. We'll come back to it. And they go to spy out the land. And then everything bad happens. Does anyone remember? Anyone want to say? Yeah, Julia? If no one else wants to go. No? Okay. I think from what I remember, they came back and two of them reported like Lushan Har and said bad things about Israel saying we, sh- we shouldn't be able to dwell in this nation and in this city because it's not good but I had a question like why is that bad if they were saying like I don't think they were intentionally trying to say Lashnar they were just saying what's bad with the land so let's find out Julia good question excellent question let's come back to it so um, you got it mostly right but just reversed ten of the spies speak badly about the land two of them defend the land Caleb, Caleb and Yoshua Caleb and Joshua defend the land, and everyone else speaks badly about the land. And they let me tell you some of the things they say. They notice that the fruit of the land is really big, and they notice that the people there are giants, are very tall. And they say, this is a land that, like, eats its inhabitants. They saw a lot of funerals when they were there, and they saw that the people were much stronger than them. And it says a very famous line in the Torah, which is very psychological, it says, we appeared in their eyes. One second, let me find it. First they say, we're not capable of conquering it. And the word, because they're stronger than us. And the word stronger than us is written in a strange way. And the Talmud says that what they really meant, it looks like it's written, they were stronger than him. And the Talmud says, who's him? God. That the spy said, the nations of the land are stronger than God. We'll never be able to conquer the land. 
which is a very crazy uh, thing to say, right? Like these are the this is the, the these are the people that came out of Egypt. They saw the twelve pl- the ten plagues. They saw the splitting of the sea, the giving of the Torah, and yet they say that the nations of the land are stronger than God. Another thing they say, which is very interesting, is they say that the people there were so big. It says all the people we saw were enormous men. We saw giants there. And we appeared like grasshoppers in our eyes, and that's how we appeared in their eyes. Just as an aside, a very interesting psychological idea is that we appeared in our own eyes like grasshoppers, and that's how they perceived us. You hear that? That the way we think of ourselves is the way others often relate to us. If you think lowly of yourself, then others will see that and feed on that. If you think highly of yourself, and you love and appreciate and accept yourself, then others will will notice that as well. Okay, so then they came back and they complained, and what day was it that they complained, that they came back? They were in the land of Israel for 40 days, and they came back on, anyone know, a very auspicious Jewish day? Excellent. Tishabav, the ninth of Av which is the day that the two temples were destroyed. It is a day of mourning. And the Talmud says, because you cried on that day for nothing, you will cry on that day forever. And that day has been a day of national tragedies for us, from going back to the destruction of the two temples to the, uh, the, the expulsion of the Jews from Spain in what year? Nope. A famous year that you all know by heart. 1492, the day Columbus was supposed to sail the ocean blue. Columbus pushed it off one day after Tisha B'Av, the day after the Jews were expelled from Spain, leading some historians to claim that Columbus was Jewish, didn't want to sail on Tisha B'Av. Um, so the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, the beginning of World War One, the day that the final solution was decided. All of these things happened on Tisha B'Av, and there's dozens of other Jewish tragedies throughout history that happened on that day as well. So the questions that we want to ask is why? Why is that fair, first of all, that we get that the punishment was the immediate consequence? Okay, there are no punishments in the Torah. Everything is consequences. Mita Keneged Mita, karma. You get what you put out. So the immediate consequence is that the generation that came out of Egypt is going to die in the desert. So they stay in the desert for another 40 years, another 38 years. They continue to travel for 38 and a half years in the desert without going into Israel until the entire generation of males, not females, males who came out of Egypt who were above the age of 20 die in the desert. Except for... What? Who? Nope. Aaron and Moshe, both and Miriam, all die in the desert. Um, Yoshua and Caleb are the only two that go in, the two that spoke goodly about the land. I'm not sure. So, so now what happens? The questions we have to understand is, so why 40 years in the desert? Why is that an immediate consequence? 
for speaking badly about the land, and second of all, why, why forever? What? It sounds like a very unfair punishment. Because you cried for nothing, now forever we're going to cry in that day. And that sounds to me like a little extreme. Um, and I don't know if we'll answer that 100% tonight, but there are answers. So the question is like this, why didn't they like the land of Israel? It's a beautiful land. It really is a beautiful land. So there's, I saw once a comic that said, um, of all the places in the Middle East, Moses could have took us. He took us to the one country that doesn't have oil. <laughs> like, but anyway, <laughs> so, so why didn't they want to go into the land of Israel? So I want to, I want to ask you the following question. We were living in the desert in a very unique environment. The desert was a place of intense spirituality. Moses was guiding us. And I want to I want to actually take a step back to answer the question to go into last week's parsha and share with you something very cool that I learned in last week's parsha. So last week's parsha something interesting happened. We just left Mount Sinai. We're walking just a few days journey to the land of Israel from Mount Sinai, 3 days journey, and suddenly we start complaining. And what do we complain about? We complained about too much traveling, right? Very Jewish. Are we there yet? Then we complained about that we want meat. We're hungry for meat. And then we also complained about wanting certain uh, illicit relationships that are no longer permitted according to the Torah. So strange, okay? Then, a little while later, someone starts prophesizing there's a, two guys that start prophesizing in the... So Moshe flips out. He's like, I can't give them meat. Why do, you, why do they want meat? And he basically says to God, I'm done. I can't handle these people anymore. And the question is why? He's like, we've been through worse. Like, we've complained about other stuff before. Like, suddenly they want meat, and Moshe's like, I'm done. I quit. You know? What's the big deal? And then, so Hashem tells Moshe to, that he has to take 70 elders and put his hands on them and give over some of his prophecy to the 70 elders, elders who will help him lead the nation. And, and one of two additional guys continue to start to prophesy, and they prophesy, Moshe will die and Yoshua will lead us into the land of Israel. And Yoshua gets very upset. How could they do that? And, and Moshe says, it's true. So suddenly there's this... Um, a prophecy that Moshe is not going to lead the Jewish people into the land of Israel, which is very strange because the events that lead up to him not leading the not being allowed to enter into Israel happen in a few weeks. So why suddenly is this prophecy happening? And then Miriam and Aaron start to speak lush and hard about Moshe. They get upset about Moshe the fact because they find out that Moshe has not been intimate with his wife because Moshe was on a level that prophecy would happen to him at any moment. And therefore, he needed to always be in a ritually pure state. Whereas Aaron and Miriam were permitted to be with their spouses. So they said, what's going on, Moshe? You think you're better than us? How come you're separate from, separating from your wife? So what's the connection between all these things? So one of the great Hasidic masters says as follows, that we're about to enter into the land of Israel, and suddenly people start to desire meat. Why? We've been living in the desert for over a year, eating this spiritual bread called man. The manna tastes like whatever you want. It's complete nourishment. It's so perfect for the body that you don't have to go to the bathroom. That's another thing that people complained about, by the way, is they miss going to the bathroom. That's also very Jewish. And uh, suddenly, though, out of nowhere, they start desiring to eat meat. Why? Why are they suddenly desiring to eat meat? So says Reb Sadek HaKon, one of the of Leblin, one of the great Hasidic masters, says that 
they desired meat because they were beginning to get ready to leave the desert. The desert was a spiritual incubator. They were in a place disconnected from the real world, the world of physicality, the world of running a nation and armies and farming and working. They were living in this spiritual oasis, eating magical bread, connecting to the Torah, walking with Moses and with the, with the uh, Ark of the Covenant and in this magical existence surrounded by spiritual clouds of glory. And they started to get, begin to get ready for Israel. And the first thing is they started to desire food, meat. They're becoming more physical. They're getting ready to enter into the physical world. And the next thing is they start to desire certain relationships, intimate relationships. Again, a physical desire. And then right away, Mo, Aaron and Miriam are like, Moshe, what's up with you? How come you're not, you're not living with your wife? Like, why are you so uh, different than us? Who, why do you think you're so holy, Moses? And uh, again, they're intuiting that we're about to enter into a world where physicality plays a very significant part. And then there's a prophecy that Moshe can't go into the land of Israel. Why? Because Moshe doesn't have the ability to bring his spirituality down into the physical existence. His job is to bring the Torah down to earth. His, he is not capable of going into the land of Israel to bring earth up to, to God. Moshe, that's not Moshe's job. He's, he exists in a spiritual reality that exists only in the desert. And that's why Moshe says, meat? I can't give them meat. My job in this world is to bring spirituality into this world. I'm not, I'm not a butcher. I'm not like the guy that works in the falafel store. That's not my job. I don't give out meat. I give out spiritual bread. And that is the introduction to this week's Parsha. Okay, so suddenly we're about to land into the land, go into the land of Israel. We're supposed to, we're about to go into a new transition. And the hitting of the rock story, Julia, took place in a several weeks. And yet the prophecy that Moshe can't go into the land already started in last week's Parsha. And the reason for that is because the rock is some is connected, but it's also because he just doesn't have he himself is separate from the physical existence. And now the great Hasidic masters and others explain that what the spies were concerned about is they go into the land of Israel. And these were the leaders of the people. And they see a whole different reality. And they start to think, wait a minute. We're living in this magical world in the desert surrounded by spirituality. And suddenly we're about to go into a land and we're going to have to govern and conquer and fight wars and build armies and build cities and build schools and collect taxes. And can, you know how hard it is to run a regular country, let alone a Jewish country? I mean, gosh, there have been like 15 elections in the past year, and I think they finally decided on what's going on in Israel now, but uh, who knows? You know, it's like, it's a mess. They, they say that one time one of the prime ministers of Israel was speaking to, um, I think it was Golda Meir, I'm not sure, was speaking to one of the presidents of the United States. And... Uh, the, the, she or, or the, whoever the Prime Minister of Israel said, you know, it's so hard to, uh, to be the Prime Minister of Israel. And the President said, what's so hard about it, you know? I have a, pres I have a President of millions, uh, of, of a much bigger nation, of hundreds of millions of people. You just have uh, 606 million. And she said, no, there's a big difference. You see, you have hundreds of millions of citizens. See, in Israel, I have 6 million co-presidents. 
because we all we all want to be in charge, you know. So uh, that's like when you go when you're in Israel on the um, on the bus. My wife likes to point out that all the uh, all the old ladies, the yentas, the babushkas, the babis, all try to tell you how to raise your kid. You know, they're like they're like, is he? Are you sure he's not too hot? Well, maybe maybe you should take off one of those blankets. Is he hungry? Why is he crying so much? You know, like don't hold him like that. Like literally, you're surrounded by like Jewish grandmothers <laughs> telling you what to do all the time. It's great. It's actually a great feeling. Um, the uh, the um, Dr. Tal Shachar, who is one of the uh, the forefront of positive psychology, was the professor Harvard professor of the most popular class in in Harvard history called Happiness 101. He moved back to Israel after many years of living and teaching in, in Boston and Harvard. And he moved back to Israel. And he said one of the reasons why he moved back to Israel is because, you know, you come to America, you go to the park, no one says anything. And he said, it's nice, it's peaceful, it's quiet. But he said, but then you start to feel alone. You start to feel like you don't have family wherever you go. He said, you move back to Israel, everyone's in your face, everyone's yelling at you, telling you what to do. But you feel like you're surrounded by family all the time. So he made a, a video you guys should check out. It's called... Um, um, I don't know what it's called. Maybe it's a startup nation. I don't know. He wrote a clip on why he moved back to Israel. It's a video. I think it's, an, it's, I think it's a, mo- a full, maybe an hour-long movie. Um, and he just goes through all the different advantages of why he feels that Israel is one of the happiest countries in the world. And Israel actually does have one of the highest happiness ratings in the world. So, despite the missiles. Um, in Israel, everyone's telling him he is doing everything wrong. Was that a question or a comment? That's right. <laughs> that that's what they do. They tell you that you're you, you're wrong, and it's and and you hate it, but it's great because you know you're not alone. You know they love you. You know the difference is when you see Israelis, right? You'll see if you've never been to Israel, you'll see people screaming at each other, like bus drivers and taxi drivers. Like they'll just stop in the middle of the street and block traffic and start yelling at each other through the window. And or you'll see two guys on the street just screaming their heads off each other, and then they give each other a big hug and they walk away. You think they're about to shoot each other, but that's their—that's the way it is with family. You talk, you know, you're the rudest with the people you're closest to, unfortunately. And uh, as as some some people are very upset when they go to they're like, why? Where's the manners? Why are people so rude to each other? And the answer is because they're comfortable with each other. So uh, anyway, moving right along. So they started to become afraid. How are we going to do this? How are we going to live in this physical reality? How are we going to bring the Torah down into, into earth, onto earth? The whole point of the Torah is to teach us how to elevate the physical world, how to lift up physicality and connect it to spirituality, how to conduct business, how to raise families, how to speak, how to, pay, how to, how to, how to uh, get married, how to eat, all the physical things, how to farm, how, what, how to deal with animals. It's all about physical stuff. So if I were to ask you guys, what's more spiritual? Now think about it from your own experiences. Being at home with your family or traveling the world? What do you say? Traveling the world. Traveling the world. What about what about hiking or going to work? Hiking. Okay, what about dating? Or uh, settling down with a serious relationship. What's more fun? Or playing the field, clubbing. <laughs> All right. So you know where we're going with this. The answer is is that 
real pleasure is the place where we commit the place where we where we are settled the place where we do the work and we grow that's true pleasure true pleasure in life and i tell people i just told one of my students today hey this week where is he where's where's dubinsky um is that once you are ready to get married you better do it quickly because everything in life pales in comparison to the satisfaction and the reward of marriage but you know what else it's also the hardest thing you'll ever do let me give you another example what's who who gives your parents the most stress in life their children and who gives them the most pleasure <laughs> grandchildren good that's a good one grandchildren are like children without the commitment right they can leave whenever they want they, you know but the reality is is that of course yeah grandchildren also but okay that's a good answer but the truth is is that you give your parents the greatest pleasure and the greatest pain because the places in life where you commit and you do the work that's the places that will give you the greatest reward and the greatest challenge because it's through the challenge and through the work that comes the pleasure and the reward so i tell people you know we just gave a class a few weeks ago on on love and then we gave another class on dating and how to find the right one okay so in the love class uh steph just listened to it i recommend anyone who wants it hit, hit me up i'll send it to you it's on youtube i don't know how to find it on youtube it's also on the podcast um so i don't think so so definition of love in short is commitment to give to another person okay that's that's the short answer okay now how do you find the right one so i gave another class a few weeks ago on how to find the right one okay the secrets of dating and i'm just going to give you the short version of that class right now and we could go into more details another time but the short version is is that in the secular world dating takes place from the bottom up you bump into each other you keep on bumping it starts in the physical, then eventually moves its way up to the emotional, and finally, after many years of becoming physically and emotionally addicted to each other, then you start to talk about long-term goals and values. And then you realize, like, what? We have nothing in common. We don't want any of the same stuff in life. Like, why have we been together for the last seven years? So uh, it's very unfortunate when that happens because you've already invested so much of your life together. Um, and sometimes at that point, it's too late to realize that you're going in different directions. So Jewish dating says you have to start from the top down. You have to start by getting clarity on your values and find someone who shares your core values in life. And exactly, well not the only reason, but one of the reasons for Shomer Nagia is that you want to avoid getting the body connected before you're absolutely certain that this is the person you want to commit to because as soon as the body gets connected then the brain shuts down because there's a release of endorphins and it becomes like a drug and you have the inability to think clearly about if this really is the right person so Judaism says start with values and then work your way into uh, what's even more important than values once the values are there though it doesn't start without values right for example if you want to raise a Jewish family you have to find a Jewish person it's not enough to do like a 30-second conversion. That doesn't count because that doesn't mean that they're going to want to raise their children with Jewish values. You want to find someone who shares the values that you believe in because what's the number one purpose of marriage? To raise children, to build, not necessarily children, but to build a home. 
And what a home is, it's a home base. It's a place where you can together put your output to change the world. The goal of life, according to Judaism, is to change the world. We're here to change ourselves and change the world. And marriage is the number one place to do that. It's the place where we can learn the most about ourselves and f- therefore fix ourselves, right? Because if you're traveling the world or you're living alone, you can think you're perfect. But as soon as you get a roommate, very quickly you're going to notice all sorts of issues, right? I know when I was traveling the world, I, whenever someone would annoy me, I would just pick up and leave. I didn't have to deal with any of my problems. And I'm like, I'm perfect. I'm the man. And then suddenly you get married and you're like, uh-oh, I've got issues, Right? And that's inevitable, because the more intimate, the closer the relationship, the more issues are going to come out, because that's just the way it works. So marriage is the, is the melting pot. It's the place where we're forced to grow up and become the best us or ruin our lives. Right? And that a lot of people choose the latter. A lot of cho- people choose not to grow up, and they end up having terrible marriages, and it's the worst. Right? But... The goal of marriage is to learn to perfect yourself and then together to perfect the world. And that's where the values come in. What's our purpose together? What's the sum of the parts that's greater? What's the totality that we're here to do? What's, how are we going to create oneness in the world, this world? How are we going to reveal God in the world? And that's, uh, that's the mission of a Jewish home. So children are definitely a part of that. But children are part of a bigger picture of, of our mission statement. So that is the most important thing. And now, just since we mentioned it, let's say, okay, I recommend that you make a top 10 list when you start dating. Okay, your top 10 list should, should have on it your top three values that are, are non-negotiable. Could be Jewish, it could be uh, um, a home that keeps Shabbat or a home, or having children could be a value. Um, and then your top three character traits. And this is more important than values. It doesn't start until you have values. But once you have values, then it's character traits, which is the most important thing to look for, is, is the person flexible? Are they kind? Are they willing to hear criticism? Are they growing, working on themselves? Do they know how to listen? Are they, are they giving or are they selfish? Are they, do they have anger issues? Right? So those, that's the next thing and most important thing. And then last is three uh, interests or behaviors. You might care about having someone who's really neat or someone who's a good cook or someone who's warm, someone who's fun, funny, uh, health-oriented. Right? Those are, those are all um, the next thing. And the last thing on your list is are you attracted to them? Okay, so it's 10 things on your list. And now let me ask you a question. If you have all 10 things on your list, you find someone who's a 10 out of 10, will you have a good marriage? Why not? It's not actually right. What do you mean? The chemistry, but let's say the chemistry is there also. You could put chemistry on your list. Let's say you get the chemistry you want and all the values and all the behaviors and all the character traits. Is it going to work? Does that mean you're going to have a good marriage? No, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Why? You need to put the work in. Oh, 
You need to put the work in because it makes no difference. It makes no difference. Having the values, it doesn't start because it's not called a marriage if you don't have common values. But everything else is irrelevant because at the end of the day, you're going to get hit by so many surprises, so many challenges, so many character traits that you weren't expecting are going to come out of nowhere that it makes almost no difference. You can have 10 out of 10 and still have a terrible marriage. Or you can have none out of 10 and you can still make it work. Why? Because the list is for you. It's for you because first of all, like I said, if you don't know what your common values are, there's no point in getting married. But it's the values, the, the, the character traits that you value are the character traits you have to engender. You have to know what your flaws are. You have to be working on yourself. You have to be flexible. You have to learn how to listen and be sensitive and be caring and kind. That's what you have to do because at the end of the day, the marriage will succeed only because of you, not because of the other person. And that's the attitude you have to have. It's entirely in your hands, and it can take one. One person can save a marriage. All it takes is one person who's committed to make it work, and you can make it work. It takes two to fight. It takes one to make it work. All right? So, so, now, so now, what is the one thing you have to do before getting married? So, so hold on. We'll get there in a second, okay? So the spies find themselves in the desert. And they're about to enter into this physical reality. And they say, we don't want it. We don't want to go into this complicated world of marriage. We'd rather continue dating and traveling and hiking in the woods all day. We'd rather meditate in a monastery. Why do we have to go into this physical world? So the Torah says, the goal is the marriage. The goal is the work. The goal is living in the real world, not the spiritual, spiritual existence of living in the desert. So, what essentially is the consequence? So, it's very interesting that one of the commentaries points out these, these were ten men. Ten men. So, it happens to be, um, before going into real life, before going into marriage, before starting your, your life, so there's a Jewish custom there's a Jewish custom which is to take a year off after high school or after college or immediately after getting married actually and to go and spend a year in Israel learning in yeshiva. That is the most important thing anyone can do before getting married. Why? Based on what I said, why do you need to spend a year getting clarity on who you are and what you believe in? And what matters to you? Why do you need that yeshiva spiritual cocoon experience of living in the desert before going into the real world of marriage and, and work? What do you think the goal of learning in yeshiva is between high school and college or after college or before marriage? Yeah. Say learning what's important. Okay, why? Why is that so important? Especially before dating. Because you don't necessarily know yourself. Ah, because the two most important things you need to do before getting married is get clarity on your values, what matters to you in life, what's the meaning of life, why are we here, and your issues, right? And if you spend your life running around and partying, you're not going to get that. But if you spend a year, a focused year, even six months, of I'm going to spend the next six months, a year of my life 
just getting clarity on who I am and what my issues are in this world. So then you're ready for marriage. Do you have to fix your issues? No, you do not have to fix your issues because you can't fix your issues until you're married. Marriage is the place to fix your issues, but you have to get clarity on what they are so that when your spouse calls you out, you don't respond how? With anger or defensiveness. You take it and you say, you're right, I know I have to work on this. I'm gonna do the work now. So, so that is why I believe that the prerequisite to marriage and to life in general is taking time off to find yourself, right? We're in a system where for some reason you're told that you have to go and spend 18 years of your life in school and then another few years in college and then right away sell your soul to the corporate world and work the rest of your life until you retire. Judaism says no. Judaism says the purpose of your life is not to work. The purpose of your life is to work on yourself, right? And therefore, to get clarity on what really matters to you is the most important thing you can ever do. So I know it's hard. I know there's co- there's college uh, bills. There's a uh, you know co- what do you call it? College something that you have to pay. Uh, no, the stuff debt, college debt, college loans. There's there's uh, you know there's rent. There's parents that are yelling at you to get a job, but at the end of the day, if you push that off or you take time off or even, and if you're already working and you can't do this, that's also fine. You can take mini time off or, or, or really consider and see if there's a chance of a sabbatical. It's not an unusual thing. In fact, according to the Jewish calendar, right? So we get every Shabbos off. That's a day of reflection and connection. But every seven years, there's something called Shemitah we talked about before. It's a, it's a Shabbos, it's a year of Shabbos for farmers. All the farm laborers, which is the majority of the people back in the day, get a whole year off to go spend the year learning in yeshiva, learning Torah. Imagine that, a whole year off, a sabbatical, right? That's what the word sabbatical comes from. So, so, the, so says one of the great commentators that... It's interesting to note the Torah says they were all men. And it was the men who were cursed to die in the desert because he says women wouldn't have done that. Women wouldn't have made the mistake that the men made of speaking badly about the land of Israel. Because women intuitively understand that the job, the purpose of life is to connect spirituality with physicality because that's what women do naturally. They bring bodies and souls together. They give birth. They are the nurturers. They're the ones that are like literally raising the families. They recognize that this is a world where we got to live in the physical world. Men, on the other hand, are either extremely physical or they disconnect from physicality in order to become extremely physical, spiritual, right? So men need to disconnect from the, the body and the physical world in order to connect to spirituality. And that's an essential thing, but that's not the goal. So therefore, in the Torah world, now this is very interesting. I forgot to mention this. We learned something crazy from uh, from the ten spies. We learn from the ten spies that there's an obligation for men to pray with ten other men. Women do not have that obligation. Why? Because just like the spies fell into negative peer pressure, 
So men have to have positive peer pressure. They have to have 10 guys that they get together with and it forces them to become more spiritual. Whereas women can pray on their own because women are naturally spiritual. They're naturally communicative with their emotions and with their friends, right? So men need to take time to learn Torah. Men are obligated to learn Torah every day. Women are not obligated to do that. It's a good thing to do. They don't have to, right? So this, this time in the desert is something essential for men. A man cannot be spiritual without it. But in our times, it's recommended for everyone, right? Everyone should take time off to learn and connect and get clarity. But it's essential for men. The other thing is their male ego. The male ego says, I'm in charge. I can do it on my own, right? Needs to be broken and told that, no, you need others. You can't do it on your own. You can't, you can't even say a prayer without another ten men, nine men there, right? You're on your own. And then the word... The word amuna, faith, comes from the Hebrew word ima, which means mother. Because the mother gives over faith to the children. It's intuitively, she's intuitively connected to the world of prayer. We learn all the laws of prayer from Hana, a woman. So, it's not foreign for women to connect to the land of Israel. And in fact, the... Uh, the Talmud says that it's in the merit of the women that we got out of Egypt, and it's the, in the merit of holy women that we will go into the land of Israel in the final days. Women didn't worship the, the golden calf, right? Women are basically the bomb, all right? Women are the man. No, uh, <laughs> women are the woman. All right, so, so essentially we wanted, the men, the spies wanted to live in this world of yeshiva, of kolo, of spirituality, non-stop. The Torah messages, you need that, but you don't need that forever. The goal is to go to work. The goal is to take it into the real world, into the everyday life. And so the punishment, the consequence for complaining about the land of Israel, of wanting to stay in the spiritual reality of the desert with Moshe and with eating man was, you want it? You want more time in the desert? Take 40. Take another 40 years. Take another 38 and a half years, total 40 years in the desert. The number 40 is a number of completion, um, 40 days for uh, a fetus to become, begin to be formed according to the Torah. So 40 is a time of, of, uh, of completion. Mo Moses went up to Mount Sinai for 40 days, again, to bring down the Torah, 40 days. So they spend 40 years in the desert, and uh, the question is really, why then is it forever? Why are we forever kind of cursed on this day of Tisha B'Av, that the destruction of the temple? Why, like, why is that a forever thing? So at this moment, I'm just going to throw out an idea. There's, there's probably much more to talk about. But um, to some degree, the message of Tisha B'Av is that when we don't recognize the importance of living in uh, of, of living according to our spiritual mission of uniting spirituality with physicality then we have to go out into the world to learn how to do it in quote unquote the real world right even Israel becomes a bubble becomes a, a spiritual oasis a utopia and again we can we can run away from our responsibilities of teaching Torah to the world. So we have to go out into the world to elevate those, those lost sparks. But that's a stretch. I don't have a good answer to that one right now. 
Anyway, um, so our blessing for this week is to get clarity, to take the time to invest in the most important asset of your life, which is you, which is your spiritual future, which is your emotional growth, your emotional intelligence, clarity, to get clarity on your values and on your emotional issues, your failings, your flaws, as well as your strengths, and to then be able to utilize that to build lives of meaning and importance, of sharing those values with others, of raising beautiful children to teach those values to, that those children can then go out and bring those values into the world, and ultimately to be a light to the nations, to, to literally change ourselves in order to change the world and to help to bring the world to completion. Thank you guys for joining me. Questions, comments?